I heard that y'all have had Bill Brewer preached. Bill and I met in 1969 at Bible Memory Association camp in Ringgold, Louisiana. Now, Bible Memory Association, um, you had to memorize hundreds of verses to get to go to camp. And, and this is in the 60s, and it was like $6 for a week. So, um, because you'd memorized all those verses. But I had grown up in a very grace-oriented church, and I had never encountered legalistic fundamentalism. It was, it, you know, boys and girls couldn't talk to each other because if they talked, who knows what might happen. You know, it was, it was they, they, they had rules for everything. It was just, I'd grown up in a very grace-oriented church, and, and there was a joy in it. And legalism steals your joy. I mean, that's just what it is. It's, actually, the term fundamentalist is a refer, reference to the theological principles that pretty much all of us would agree on, that the Jesus is God, the, the atonement, things like that. Um, um, in fact, I had a secretary once. I said, well, I'm a fundamentalist. She said, no, you aren't. I said, well, theologically, I'm a fundamentalist. I'm not, I'm not culturally a fundamentalist. She said, no, you're not. I said, you don't know my theology. She said, no, but I like you. <laughs> um, uh, so um, I had never encountered it, and it was amazing. But we should have known something was wrong. They served prunes at every meal. <laughs> they really did. They had a hymn, Miracle Camp. And I always substituted the next line, the place where we eat prunes. It was, they were just totally focused on, you know, and, and it was just so strange. But that's where I know Bill Brewer. We were in seminary and looked at each other and said, prunes, I know you. And um, he built a great church in Richardson, Wood Creek, originally Richland Fellowship, and uh, is a good friend. We run into each other every once in a while. So I'm glad you're having good sermons sometimes. Um, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege of, of knowing you and your son. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would take your word and transform our hearts, that you would get in the way of anything I say that's harmful, and that your spirit would say the things that are needful. In Christ's name, amen. Um, we have a phrase in East Texas that boy lost his ball in the weeds. See, if you've ever played pickup baseball or that kind of thing, and you only had one ball, the worst thing would happen is if the ball got hit somewhere and you lost your ball in the weeds. The game was over, you know. And we used to do that. We'd pay in, in lots and, and lose our ball in the weeds. But what it means is you, you've gotten so caught up in things that you've forgotten why you're here. You've forgotten why you're here. And, and, and that happens in the body of Christ. Sometimes we forget why we're here. We get caught up in all these other things, and they're all good things. They're wonderful things. They're beautiful things. But in our, ironically, we, we lose track of why we're here, why, why we're playing ball, if you will. Uh, I love the book of Philippians. It's probably my favorite epistle. Um, I had a Canadian Mennonite who worked for me, and he said he called them epistles. Um, I said, "That's not." He said, "It's got a T in it." Um, my favorite epistle, and if if you've never, this is an old guy to a bunch of young people. If you've never read from J. B. Phillips, it was the hot translation in the '60s. The cover looked like a cookbook. It was famous as the cookbook, New Testament. Go online and look up J. B. Phillips translation and read Philippians. 
it, it was brilliant. It, he, he just did a beautiful job with it. Um, so this is my favorite book, and, and chapter 3 is one of my favorite passages. I found out last time I was here, I was supposed to speak from Philippians, but apparently I didn't listen. So we talked on prayer instead. I hope it's okay. Um, uh, when I was at the church, I had... Becky, and you told Becky so that I would remember. Now you tell Julie so that I will remember. That's just the way the world works. Um, my apologies for being on the wrong passage. But Philippians 3 is a magnificent passage because it speaks so much to where you and I are. If you look back at it, the first three verses, um, he starts out the subject, and I, I called it a warning against interlopers. Because I wanted to say the word interlopers. Uh, an interloper is someone who sticks their nose in your business when it's not their business. We all know interlopers, right? And, and Apostle Paul in first uh, three verses warns against a certain kind of interlopers. Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for, for you. Uh, there's some debate. Is he repeating rejoice? Because the major theme of this book is rejoicing and joy. One of the reasons I love it. Because one of the things I struggle with is keeping joy. I mean, the world's crazy, right? And joy is a big deal. So he repeats it. And like so many preachers, he says, finally, when he's only halfway through. You know, we've all done that. You think, finally, finally is right. And then they gear up and go all over for a while. And Paul kind of does that here. Others believe that what he's about to say is something he's written in a previous letter. And he's repeating this warning because he said, it's no trouble for me to repeat it. And that's probably the more likely. It's not that he's repeating rejoice. It's that he's repeating this warning. And the warning is against those dogs, verse 2, evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. Now, we read dogs as an insult, and that kind of hurts our feelings because, let's face it, many of us worship our pets. I mean, I had an aunt who spelled words in front of her beagle so that he wouldn't know what she was saying. It was not that smart a dog. I'm just just saying. You know, we, we really, I mean, I mean, we're ordering food that we put in the refrigerator for a dog. I mean, you know. And some of you are offended, but get over it. Um, um, they didn't view dogs that way. Dogs roamed in packs. They ate carrion, dead animals on the side of the road. They were therefore associated with uncleanness. Uh, to call someone a dog was, was a horrible uh, accusation against them. They, in the first century, an Israelite would be more likely to keep his sheep in his house than a dog because his sheep was part of his livelihood. In fact, when Jesus was in a manger, there's a high possibility that it was a manger in the front of, his, of the house in which they were living. Um, so dog is not a nice thing. It's not fluffy. It's dogs, those mutilators of the flesh. He uses an interesting word there for mutilator. Um, it's a word associated with pagan idolatry. Remember Elijah's battle on Mount Carmel with the prophets and they cut themselves in trying to get God's attention? It's that kind of self-mutilation, which scripture expressly forbade because the body of a human is reflective of the image of God and we dare not mutilate it. In fact, there's a whole debate whether Christians should have tattoos. And I have no opinion <laughs> about that for what it's worth. 
do whatever you want, whatever seemeth right to you. Go, I got none of them. But anyway, so he calls them dogs and mutilators because they're Judaizers. The people against whom he's warning are Judaizers. Uh, when Christianity first began, it was just viewed as a part of Judaism. Um, and then over time, it grew more and more separate because there was huge pressure in the church about how Jewish should a Christian be, especially when they started leading in Gentiles to Christ. And so it came to a head in, Genesis, in Acts chapter 17 in what we call the Jerusalem Council, where James, the brother of Christ, and Peter, they had a tribunal, which if you were in a Presbyterian church, you would say that was the first Presbytery meeting. Um, and, and that, and which they decided do do new believers who are not Jewish have to get circumcised. And if you recall, they decided, no, that they told them, don't eat food offered to idols or eat blood. And, but in other words, don't do those kind of practices, but you're not required to become Jewish. Because if you remember, Paul had Timothy be circumcised so that he would be not a turnoff to the Jewish community. It was a major, major issue. Is Christianity going to be a Jewish sect or is it going to be something different? And the Apostle Paul, well, starting with Peter's vision, when, remember when God brought down the sheet with all the unclean animals and told Peter, eat it? And Peter said, no, 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 I've never done that. And God said, what I call clean is clean. Starting with that, and then the apostle Paul's call to be the apostle to Gentiles, the whole church became less and less a Jewish movement and more and more a, a, a movement into the Gentile world. Very significant. But in the transition. There were those who were so offended that the church was not Jewish that they followed Paul wherever he went and tried to convert people to Judaism and would require them to be circumcised. Now, there's something interesting with that. Have you ever wondered why was circumcision the issue? Because if you believe Judaism was true and Christianity was false, circumcision would be the least of your worries. What was the real issue? For, for a Jew, it would be that Jesus is the Son of God. That would be the issue. That was, if you look at it from an Old Testament Jewish mindset, that was the heresy that this one called himself the Son of God. But they aren't arguing that. They're telling people, just make sure you get circumcised. What does that tell you? I don't think the issue was theological. I really don't. I don't think the issue was theological. I think the issue was control. I, I, don't, think, I don't think they were that worried about whether Christianity was true. I think they were worried that they were getting out of their control. There are three great temptations for a Christian. You see this in the Christian ministry and in Christian organizations. One is sexual. And every once in a while, some prominent follower, I mean leader, falls for sexual sin. One is financial. Ever so often, someone prominent falls because of inappropriate use of funds. The, the, the problem with those two is they're so easy to catch. They ultimately come out, right? The third great temptation is control. And it is a cancer that can destroy churches. Who gets to be in control? I had a mentor who was a Fort Worth attorney, brilliant theologian. Um, I watched him 
argue with R.C. Sproul at a theological conference, and R.C. Sproul was running to get away from him. He, he was just a ruthless attorney um, and a dear guy. And he, he used to summarize... He used to summarize church history as an ongoing battle over who gets to dispense the grace of God. Think about that one. The Catholic Church said, no, we get to dispense the grace of God. Luther said, no, don't think so. Even today, pastors, people in leadership can get caught up and it has to go through me. I'm the one who dispenses the grace of God. Control. Y'all are in a wonderful spot as a church. It's an exciting time. I know you miss Jeff. I know, you, you know, all of that is good, but it was God's will for Jeff to go. And if it was God's will for Jeff to go, it was God's will for you to have a new pastor. That's the way it works. God, God doesn't lose one and, and win on the other. They all work together for good, right? One of the things that you will go through is, is struggle over control. That's what happens when there is a void Jeff's void, you'll go through struggles about uh, that, uh, well, who gets to decide this? And if you're not careful, the flesh will kick in. And my encouragement to you would be to step back and always ask yourself, what is the Lord doing? Let's be careful that we don't let our need for control, our need for these things to get in the way of the Lord doing something among us. Because it's so natural. I've done it. We've all done it. It's just because when we're in control, we feel good about things, right? If I'm in control, I know that no one can mess it up but me. Um, Problem is, of course, I can mess it up too, right? I really think that's what the Judaizers wanted. They wanted to pull these new Christians under the, the control of the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And so the first thing is you need to get circumcised. You need to follow all the Old Testament rules. You need to follow the feasts and the Sabbaths. And Paul battles that throughout his ministry. In fact, he says, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We are the circumcision, the true circumcision. What does he mean by that? Well, the Old Testament has numerous, in Jeremiah and other passages, refer- references to the circumcision of the heart. And that is to be set apart in who you are for the worship. But the point of circumcision was it was what we call a sign of the covenant. It was a demonstration that your family understood that you were a child of the covenant. You would grow up in a covenant relationship going back to Abrahamic covenant. And he says, some were circumcised, but never were really children of the covenant. They never really lived as if they were a part of the covenant family. He said, those of us who submit to God are the true circumcision. And Paul would say, now with the gospel, those who submit to God's Messiah, Jesus, are the true circumcision, right? So we are the true circumcision. And then he describes what that is. We worship by the spirit of God, not by the letter of law. And glory in Jesus Christ, not in ourselves, and put no confidence in the flesh. Fundamentally, the great temptation always for Christians is to move from faith to the flesh. To move from trusting in him to trusting in my own actions. And it's so subtle. Because the tempter always uses good things to tempt us. 
What are the kind of confidence in the flesh? Well, in their day, it was circumcision. Well, uh, acknowledging the Sabbath, doing the feast days, tithing. There may have been as many as three tithes. Um, so that uh, some theologians estimate that the total tithe was 25% of your revenue, not 10. That'll shake you up, won't it? Um, I thought I had it good. Um, all the things that Judaism would say, you know, wearing phylacteries, all the things that would represent being a good Jew. We have our own list, right? I go to church. I was baptized. You know, we celebrate Easter. We do Christmas the right way. We go to a Christian church. We, our Christian kids go to a Christian school and we give. I mean, we have our own list. Uh, having been around so long, it's fun to watch how different generations have different lists. In the old days, when I was at Dallas Seminary, that it was so much about the Bible. Hearing the Bible, you'd hear an old Christian say, I heard J. Vernon McGee speak in person. Okay. I heard Chuck Swindoll when he was 28. Okay. I mean, it was, it was kind of the, the thing was who you'd heard teach the word. Um, you know, and, and we, those things change over time. Different things that we brag about that show our pedigree as Christians. You know what one of the temptations for us now, and I may offend somebody, but I'm part-time. <laughs> Everybody's passionate. Everybody tell you, well, I'm passionate about this. I'm really As a senior pastor, I got to where I never wanted to hear that word again. I'm passionate. I had a a staff member who said, I'm passionate about working in the inner city. He never showed up in the inner city and all the stuff we did, but he was passionate about it. You know, we, our passions, our emotions, our feelings have become kind of our credentials. What are you passionate about? My inclination would be, what are you doing? But even those aren't the most important. Do you hear me? They're all good things. It's good to be passionate about the work of God. I'm grateful I memorized 100,000 verses to go to BMA camp for $6 a week. Deeply grateful. I still quote scripture. Although I learned it at BMA in King James and then I used NASV and then I used NIV and now I use ESV. And so it's my translation um, when I quote it today. But all of those are good things, right? Obedience to the Sabbath, obedience to the law for the Jews were good things. So what's wrong with them? He goes on to effectively tell us. First though, He wants to show them that this isn't sour grapes. He has everything they think is important. Although I myself have reason to put confidence in the flesh, anyone thinks he has reason in the flesh, I have more. And then Paul goes through his Jewish resume. Circumcised on the eighth day. Genesis chapter 17, the the third time the Abrahamic covenant is repeated, God gives Abram the the covenant of circumcision, sign of the covenant of circumcision to demonstrate your faith that God will provide by circumcising your sons. Of the people of Israel, I think what he's saying there is ethnic Israel. I'm not a proselyte. I was born Jewish. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 
That one always struggled. Benjamin was one of the smallest tribe there and had a bad episode in their history. Uh, why would he brag about, you know, Saul, the first king, was a Benjaminite, but he didn't turn out well. We should have known that because his only qualification was he was tall. Um, always resented that personally. But <laughs> why would Benjamin be something you to brag about? Well, Jerusalem was in the region that was assigned to Benjamin. And when the, when the kingdom split after David's death in the reign of Solomon, the Benjaminites stayed with Judah in the southern kingdom, whereas the rest of the nine tribes, not counting the Levites, went with Israel. So that would be a point of pride, that they were true to the temple worship. A Hebrew of Hebrews. That may actually refer to the fact that he grew up speaking Hebrew and Aramaic. He wasn't Greek-speaking. Because there would clearly be a, a, a bit of a snobbery to those whose native language was Hebrew. As the law, a Pharisee. Now the Pharisees get a lot of bad press in the New Testament and they deserve every bit of it. But the Pharisees first apparently came about during the, the time of the Maccabees. Antiochus Epiphanes, look him up, bad guy came in and defeated Israel and defaced and defiled the temple of God. And that's when the Maccabean revolt occurred and, and the Israelites took back the temple. And the Feast of Hanukkah, the Feast of Lights, comes from that. The Pharisees rose up during that period with the best of intentions. Judaism had strayed further and further away from true worship of God of Israel. And so the Pharisees were the ones that said, we're going to go back to obeying the law. And they not only memorized the Ten Commandments, they memorized all 600 plus laws in the Old Testament, and then, like any good religious person will do, created more and more rules in order to, you know, the. in fact, the New Testament says they, they read about tithing, so they tithed basically their table salt, you know, make sure they tithed everything. Jesus condemns them that you tithe your table salt, but you don't take care of your parents. You You do the letter of the law, but you don't do the intent of the law. But the, they started out as good people, but they went crazy with it. Because why? It became about the flesh, what they did. So one of the stories that Jesus tells us about the Pharisees, uh, Pharisee praying and the poor man in the corner and the Pharisees, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that guy. Can I give you a hint? Any time at least for me, and I suspect maybe for you too, anytime I start comparing myself to other Christians, I'm in a bad direction. Because I'm putting confidence in the flesh. If salvation is only by faith through grace, then I have nothing to compare myself. We're all recipients of God's grace. But it's, it's so easy to look at other Christians and say, Lord, thank you that we really read the Bible. Thank you that... We do communion right. Thank you that we dunk and don't sprinkle or sprinkle and don't dunk. You know, whatever it is that we feel proud about doing, anytime we fall into comparison that makes us feel important, we're sliding away from grace and faith. The Pharisees had gotten caught up that so that they bludgeoned the common Jew with just how unrighteous they were. As to zeal, he says, a persecutor of the church. I was so convicted about the truth of my Judaism when this followers of the way, this one Jesus, he went around persecuting new Christians, having them thrown in jail. 
As to the righteousness of the law, I was blameless. Now we know from Romans chapter 7 that Paul would ultimately admit that he struggled with coveting, that that was the law that, that took him down. But, but I think what he's saying here, as far as anyone was concerned, I, did, I was a perfect Jew, a super Jew. And, and, and we get that, right? Because we all kind of want we want our friends in church at least to say, well, he's really a good Christian. She really does Christianity well. But Paul says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. All that stuff doesn't matter. It's rubbish. It's scupula is the Greek word. It, it's, it's, it's waste. Anything that I've accomplished doesn't matter. Why? Because it's only God's grace that matters. It's only God's grace that matters. Nothing else matters. It's God's grace demonstrated and worked out through Jesus' death on the cross. That's the only means by which any of us can stand before God and say, I am yours because we've embraced what Jesus did for us on the cross. In one sense, that takes away bragging and pride, right? Because what have I got to say? Oh, I went to seminary. That just tells me you had a lot of money to pay for tuition and a lot of time to ruin your life studying Greek and Hebrew. Um, Oh, I did this. I did that. None of that matters. The only thing that matters is the grace of Jesus. So it takes away pride. But you know what else it does? It takes away insecurity. Because the bad doesn't matter either. We spend so much time as Christians trying to prove to everybody else how good we are, and our gospel says we're not good, right? It's like saying you're a good Calvinist. That's a contradiction in terms. Um, the, The reality is that when we embrace Jesus, we acknowledge that we have no righteousness. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. We have nothing to offer the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God. All we can do is receive. It takes away pride, but it relieves the guilt. We have no shame before God because of the forgiveness he gives. What a freeing thing. So that's why I can count all those things as loss. He said, verse 8, indeed, I count everything a loss compared to the passing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's the goal. Knowing Jesus. And for his sake, I suffered the loss of all things and count them as scupula in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. The only means I have of getting his acceptance is the righteousness that he counts to me by his death on the cross. So that the only goal I have is to know him. I just want to know him. That's why we come here. 
to renewal in our knowledge of him by his word, by his by music. Have you ever thought about how weird it is that you are commanded in the New Testament to sing in church? That's one of the things unbelievers struggle with. They come to church and everybody sings. Where else do you sing in big group gatherings? I mean, maybe the Star Spangled Banner at a baseball game. Um, maybe, I mean, we don't go to meet, you know, you don't go to a banquet and let's all stand up and sing. I mean, you just don't do that. Why is singing such an important part of worship? Because it touches our hearts. It's not just the intellect of knowing what the Bible says. It's, 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 it's the love language of our hearts. Music opens that up because it's not about doing the right things and being religious. It's about knowing and loving someone. That's why songs are about romance because they open the heart. Movies are about romance because it opens the heart. Worship is about music because it opens the heart to remind us of our love for Christ. Incredibly important because it's about knowing him. And he goes on to say, in the power of his resurrection, uh, he gives two hints about how we come to know him. One is through his power. And, and I got to tell you, one of the things that happens when we've been a Christian for a long time is we forget about his power. You know, it's one of the things that's so fun about being around brand new believers. They, they don't know what they're not supposed to believe yet. And they'll pray these crazy prayers of faith. You know, a guy that we led, uh, saw lead uh, come to Christ in high school. We had a little small group in my buddy's house, and we were having a little Bible study. And he's praying, and he's swearing in his prayer, because uh, he doesn't know the rules. <laughs> but there was so much faith there. Because he trusted in the power of the resurrection that made Jesus, who was dead, alive. But then he throws this high inside heater at us. And the fellowship of his sufferings. Well, do I really want to know that? C.S. Lewis has a quote about God screaming to us in our pain. Um, One of my complaints against us preachers is we have made spiritual growth all about things that we control. You know, come to church, have a quiet time, we'll tell you how. All these other things. When you read books on the spiritual life, you know what they leave out more often than not? Your experience. But God uses our experience, especially pain, to leverage Scripture and prayer and worship to change our hearts. One of the greatest gifts any of us can have is not to hurt, but to learn what it is to hurt in fellowship with Christ. And if you look back at the times when you came to truly know the sweetness of fellowship with him, it's more often than not in the context of pain. That I may know him in the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings in order that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. He, by the way, the first time I ever read that, I thought he was saying, I'm not sure I'll be resurrected the dead. I'm hoping I will. I think what it means is, uh, I don't know how I will, whether, but we know from Paul's other writings, he believed that there was a high likelihood that Jesus would return while he was alive. And so that would be how he attained to the resurrection of the dead and, and the res- when he was there when Jesus returned. Um, 
or it might be after he had died, or, and I think that's what he means. I don't know the circumstances, but it's all about attaining to the resurrection of the dead. The goal is to know him, not to do religious things, which are good. I'm for prayer. I preached on it last time when I wasn't supposed to. <laughs> um, I'm for church. I'm for the Bible. I'm for fellowship with most people. The I, That was a joke. I'm sorry. <laughs> Julie's doing this. Um, but the object, the point, is to love him, to know him. I've done a lot of weddings. Um, I don't think I'm real good at it. But first of all, I can't ever see over them. It's an awkward thing. Um, but have you ever been to a wedding and, and realized everybody's uptight and mad and working around and you just think, I think they've forgotten what this is about. It's become a show that we have to do, you know, spend a lot of money on and all of this. We've forgotten that this is just the least important day of the we- a marriage. It's just the day that it gets started. And the point of this is, is a man and a woman coming together to spend the rest of their lives learning what it is to know and love each other. And it takes the rest of your life. Uh, we've been married over 47 and a half years, and she still surprises me. I look at her and think, who are you? Um, because the depth of the riches of someone you love just keeps revealing itself over time. And having counsel with marriages, one of the things you find out is sometimes in marriage we we get caught up in doing family things. You know, we we raise kids and we take them to soccer and to this and to that and life gets all full of family things. And then we wake up one day and realize we, we're not knowing each other. We're not loving each other. Now, all those things are good. It's good to feed your children. It, I, I really believe in it. Um, uh, those things are important. Um, Julie had a friend who's, um, they had a new baby. And, and when she was a principal of a school, she said to the little boy, how do you like your new sister or little girl? I'm probably telling it wrong, and she'll tell me I'm wrong later. But Work with me here, okay? She said, how do you like your new little brother? He says, he's fine, but you have to feed them every day. (laughs) Those are good things, right? But is that the most important thing in a family? No. It's loving each other. It's loving each other. Taking time to listen. To walk together, to get to know each other, to do the things that you used to do. The same is true in our faith. We can get so caught up in doing all the right things and making sure that we do them better than everybody else. That we forget that it's, it's about knowing Jesus and experiencing life with him. The Apostle Paul, whose resume is matchless, said none of that other stuff matters. I just want to know him. 
And as you walk through life, by the way, the greatest spiritual discipline is life. As you walk through life and each circumstance, learn what it is to walk with Jesus through those circumstances. You will find there is always more about him to know and love. Finally, I mean it. Um, finally, sometimes we get we we just get all caught up in all of that stuff, and and we forget that it's just to know him, to love him, to find out who he is. People will tell me, you know, I can't wait to get to heaven, and then I'll understand it all. I. Th- don't think that's true. I think we'll spend eternity learning new things about who God is and who Jesus is. I think there will be a new surprise every eon. It's pretty cool. Father, thank you that you want to know us. And in fact, knowing us so well, you still love us and gave your son for us. Protect us from doing the right thing in place of loving our Savior and our God. Thank you that you want to be known and you give us your word to keep us within the rails. Lord, I pray that as we go through life, each day would be a new opportunity to know and love you better. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.